Hi, welcome to the Covenant Presbyterian Church podcast, a weekly broadcast of our Sunday sermon. I am Lee Campbell-Taylor, the interim pastor here, and Covenant Presbyterian Church is an open, affirming congregation, and we're so glad you found us. Our primary mission is to equip God's people to serve Christ in the world. In our weekly messages, we hope that you'll find inspiration, encouragement, and even challenge for your faith journey. Please listen with us now. Whenever someone mentions that in the years since they were in school, they've learned some revelatory item about Thomas Jefferson, you may well think of the saga of Sally Hemings and the children that she bore Jefferson while she was enslaved by him. Now, just the appalling, tragic irony that a man who famously wrote about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was a slaveholder should make us all queasy, and it certainly deserves attention. But the revelatory item about Thomas Jefferson that's been on my mind as I have been considering today's gospel text is the Jefferson Bible. Jefferson was very much a man of the Enlightenment fascinated by science as well as philosophy, linguistics, and, of course, politics. And he was a deist. I once read a definition of deism as the view of of God as a clockmaker. Deism asserts that God created the universe as an intricate machine and then moved on to other projects, leaving this creation to run itself under the dubious oversight of humankind. That apparently was something of Thomas Jefferson's belief. Now that said, Jefferson clearly admired Jesus. As early as 1804, Jefferson had compiled a book he called The Philosophy of Jesus of Nazareth. No copy of that work is known to exist today. But a second volume, completed in 1820 as Jefferson was nearing the end of his life, entitled The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, extracted textually from the Gospels in Greek, Latin, French, and English, that does exist. It is more commonly known as the Jefferson Bible, and it was handcrafted by Thomas Jefferson, who took a razor blade to copies of the Bible translated into those four languages, and intent on paring down all of Scripture to Jesus' moral teachings, the first thing Jefferson cut out was, of course, the entire Old Testament. And with that went all of the antecedents of Jesus as the fulfillment of God's relationship with humanity. Then within the New Testament, Jefferson eliminated everything that didn't align with his devotion to rationality and natural law. So out the window went anything miraculous. Now, if there was a teaching embedded in a miracle story, the teaching was carefully kept, but the miracle was jettisoned. The result of this meticulous effort is a Bible that is a whole 84 pages long. It is an account of Jesus the man, a wise teacher of morality whose truths were, to quote the Smithsonian, where you can see the original Jefferson Bible on display, Jesus whose truths were expressed without the help of miracles or the supernatural powers of God. So, no walking on water, 
no water into wine. Okay, no healing, and certainly no resurrection. And of course, none of what we are about to hear right now. This is Luke chapter 9, beginning with the 28th verse. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and went up the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, Peter and John and James saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to Jesus. The two appeared in glory and were speaking of Jesus' departure which he would accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men who stood with him. And just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we should be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. And then from the cloud came a voice that said, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, and in those days told no one any of the things that they had seen. This, too, is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It's not hard to see why the Transfiguration did not make it into the Jefferson Bible, huh? I mean, that story is nothing but Jefferson's dismissed categories, the Old Testament and the miraculous. It features Moses and Elijah, heroes of the Hebrew Bible who not only represent the law and the prophets, respectively, but also remind the faithful of other mountaintop experiences with God, including the one that Keelan was just reading us about. And since those two mythic figures would have died centuries before Jesus was born, their appearance provides a supernatural surprise even before Jesus is transfigured in his appearance and the scene is engulfed in cloud, which is the ancient sign of God's mysterious presence. And a divine voice claims Jesus as God's chosen one. You can imagine Thomas Jefferson not just slicing out this story, but then dicing it into confetti. Even in a book that is laced through and through with miracle and wonder, this is a particularly weird episode. So why is this story here? And how might we need it now? In Luke's gospel, Jesus has just made a sharp turn toward the cross. After taking the scenic route of teaching and preaching and feeding and healing, astounding the crowds and infuriating the authorities, Jesus suddenly asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter had the right answer, the Messiah of God. As if that were the cue he'd been waiting for, Jesus immediately begins setting his course for Jerusalem. And the first step of that journey was to plainly tell his disciples that he must suffer and be killed and on the third day be raised. And if that weren't enough, Jesus then issued 
the least inviting invitation ever. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Knowing his disciples are going to need help with that, Jesus takes three of them up the mountaintop. Now, what Luke is doing in telling this story is to reach new generations, including us. And what the church calendar is doing is letting us hear it here on the final Sunday of Epiphany, a season that focuses not on the morals of Jesus, but on the meaning of Jesus. Epiphany explores how God is revealed in Jesus Christ. Remember, Epiphany began with a quick dip into Matthew's gospel so we could hear his story of the Magi following a star that revealed Jesus as the only king worthy of worship. And then the season continued to the River Jordan, where a voice from heaven revealed Jesus to be God's beloved son. And now the season culminates with Jesus revealed in awe-inspiring, physics-defying, purpose-driven glory. In the transfiguration, Jesus is revealed as infinitely beyond the limited grasp of rationality. His face undergoes some sort of mysterious change, and his clothes become dazzling white. Literally, the text says his clothing was as white as light. This epiphany reveals Jesus as he truly is. Sure, he's a wise teacher of morality, but Jesus is also mysteriously more than merely a man. He is God choosing to live among us. Now, conversing with Moses and Elijah reveals Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and the three figures speak together of Jesus' departure. The word used is that loaded word, exodus, which he will accomplish in Jerusalem, an exodus from earthly life that will reveal Jesus as the suffering servant Lamb of God, and an exodus from the tomb that will reveal him as the salvific risen Lord. This story that is flamboyantly unfit for the Jefferson Bible is meant to equip Jesus' disciples then and now, meant to equip us as each of us continues our faith journey. Now, for Peter, John, and James, the journey was literal, as they immediately trekked back down that mountain and stepped back onto that dusty road leading to Jerusalem, to betrayal and denial and the cross. For us, the journey is metaphorical, but our path also now turns toward the cross because the journey of Lent is upon us. The season of Epiphany, when we ponder how God revealed who Jesus is, that season concludes today, delivering us to the doorstep of Lent, which is a season intended to reveal who we are. As we prepare for that inward journey, for the challenging road of repentance, the story of the transfiguration helps fortify us with awe as we marvel that the one who walks with us is power and glory beyond the limits of natural law. Surely that's why Jesus takes disciples up that mountain. 
He knows what lies ahead of him and what lies ahead for his followers. He's even told them, and it didn't go over well. So he gives them this vision of his glory, hoping it will equip them as they begin the journey to the cross. Our discipleship journey parallels theirs, less dusty, less harrowing. But if we are truly walking the path of discipleship, Lent will ask a lot of us. In my office, there's this big signed print of artist Laura James's depiction of Jesus walking on water and rescuing Peter out of the sea that he's sinking into. I keep that picture where I can see it, not because I even care whether Jesus literally defied the laws of physics in order to take a shortcut across the Sea of Galilee, but because I need reminding that Jesus rescues me when I am sinking. I need reminding that I am called by the God who is not a preoccupied clockmaker, but is revealed to us in Jesus as the source of love and compassion, peace and justice, not to mention life and liberty. Thomas Jefferson may not have needed such reassurance, but I do. And as this world that God so loves moves ever deeper into this century's ever-evolving challenges, I realize that I also need a promise of miraculous possibilities. I need to be awed and inspired by God. I need not merely to be taught morality, but to be made courageous in faith. And so I'll close with a poem I dredged up during this week as I joined countless people around the globe who are horrified by the news out of Ukraine. This is Anne Weems' poem, I No Longer Pray for Peace. On the edge of war, one foot already in, I no longer pray for peace, I pray for miracles. I pray that stone hearts will turn to tenderheartedness and evil intentions will turn to mercifulness and all the soldiers already deployed will be snatched out of harm's way and the whole world will be astounded onto its knees. I pray that all the God talk will take bones and stand up and shed its cloak of faithlessness and walk again in its powerful truth. I pray that the whole world might sit down together and share its bread and its wine. Some say there is no hope, but then I've always applauded the holy fools who never seem to give up on the scandalousness of our faith that we are loved by God, that we can truly love one another. I no longer pray for peace. I pray for miracles. And God's people say, amen. Thanks for listening to the Covenant Presbyterian Church podcast. I invite you to visit our website, covpresatl.org, that's C-O-V-P-R-E-S-A-T-L.org. There you'll find current worship information, links to our live Sunday morning streaming service, and our full archive of recorded services. 
You'll also find out more about us and how to get in touch. I wish you well in these strange times. God is with us. Grace and peace to you.